Well, good evening. I'm so glad to see you. To me, it's just always encouraging to find people who have a priority of studying the Word of God. I hope you've had a a good day in the Lord. I hope you met with Him today and that you had some time to fellowship with Him through the Word and in prayer. And I'm so thankful for those of you who come to pray and bring us before the throne of grace. We we believe that is very important and very valuable. And uh, I want to thank all of you who have been uh, praying for me and for Phyllis. And um, the Lord has been pleased to answer your prayers, I'm sure, because I'm here and I'm feeling good. So... <laughs> Uh, I want to thank you for that. Uh, this past week, I uh, was in Brenham at Country Bible Church. Pastor Mike Smith, as you may know, has a cancerous growth behind his left eye, and this will require surgery. They have uh, done some tests on it and some measurements, and uh, it is increasing slightly. They're trying to um, take steps to bring this down a little bit, but uh, they he was scheduled to have surgery this past week, but they postponed that until the second week in August. But uh, you you keep Mike uh, on your on your prayer list, and uh, if you think think of it, also pray for Scott Deweese. Scott is his <clears throat> pastor in training out there, and. Uh, uh, Scott's a little bit tentative about uh, coming in and, and teaching Bible classes, especially when he might have to do three in a week. And that's uh, that's a pretty big step for someone not accustomed to teaching and not having much of a backlog of lessons prepared. So you remember to pray for them. Pray also for our pastor. He and his wife are getting some R&R, I hope, uh, on vacation this week. And I must say, Robbie works very hard. He is a real student. He's a scholar. He spends a lot of time studying. But also behind the scenes, many of you may not know it, he spends a lot of time ministering to other people, talking to pastors, talking to people who write in with questions or who call, he really does a lot. And I think that much of what he does is not seen. But uh, I'm going to tell you, I know that he works very hard. He puts in long hours. And so I'm delighted that he can uh, take a few days, and uh, I hope he... He's not going to be thinking about Bible class, but knowing Robbie, he's probably got his phone on right now to check me out or <laughs> uh, just to keep up on things. But uh, pray for Robbie and uh, his health and pray that he gets some R&R this week. All right, we have come to study the Word of God. The most important question that we can find is what does the Scripture say? And that ends all disputation. That is the end 
of seeking when we can answer that question, what does the Scripture say? Because there are endless ideas, concepts, philosophies, and they contradict the Bible, and there are so many things that seem right to man, that seem reasonable and logical, and yet the Bible says that's not it. That's not the way God is working, and sometimes it's hard for us to even accept that. Well, how could God do that? that just, that's just not right. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not loving. Or we come up with some other criticism for the way that God does things. But what does the Scripture say? Well, God has revealed himself to us. He has caused it to be written down. He has preserved this writing. And grace to us, we can each have his own Bible in your own language. And you can read it, and you can study it. And this is, this truly is a, a gift of God's grace to us. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to give us spiritual understanding with regard to spiritual truth. But when we have personal sin in the life, this grieves the Spirit. It quenches his power in us so that he is not going to teach us while we are carnal. But God has provided the means whereby we can have the forgiveness of all sins. That means of forgiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin. And on this basis only is God able to forgive our sins. And he does so when we confess our sins to him. So we'll take a moment of silent prayer. You come before the Lord, and if there's... Sin in your life that's hindering your fellowship with the Father right now, you take this moment and confess those sins to him, and then we can uh, rely upon the Holy Spirit to be the teacher tonight. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with humility, recognizing that we have never deserved anything from you except condemnation, and how we praise you for your mercy, for your grace to us. You provided for us salvation. You've given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the spiritual provision through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. So I thank you that we have this revelation so that we can come to know you in a right way and we can come to understand what reality is as we open your Word together. And we can come to appreciate this wonderful plan of grace that you have laid out. And it comes to us courtesy of your suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that tonight your Holy Spirit will help us to understand the things that we will study. We might have greater appreciation for all you've done for us and all that's available to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, we have been looking at Isaiah chapter 53. This is the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. It is the clearest declaration of the gospel to be found in the Old Testament. And we see in this particular song that begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and goes all the way through chapter 53, that God is providing salvation through the death of a sinless substitute. And the salvation that is being provided is for Israel, but it also includes provision for the Gentiles, as seen at the end of chapter 52. So there is the one who is going to satisfy the demands of God's justice, and this is for Jew and Gentile alike. But what we have in this portion of Isaiah chapter 53, actually we have Israel recognizing what they have done in their rejection of Messiah and what he has done for them, and they didn't understand it. And there will come a point in the future when Israel will make this as a national declaration. They will recognize that indeed they have rejected the one that God sent to be the Messiah, and they are going to uh, put their faith in him. And this is something that's going to come about at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the age of Israel. All right, uh, we looked last time at the gospel as found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All right, all... We like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice the first word and the last word, all. And it's this way also in the Hebrew text. This is very emphatic, and this forms what we call an inclusio. It's like brackets on something, and it's, it's like painting this thing with a yellow highlighter. This is important. Now, we start out with all, we end up with all. And Jesus Christ is going to bear the iniquity of us all. Why? Because all of us have gone astray. And so, in this context, one of the things that we can see is that there is unlimited atonement. Whose sins were born by the servant? The sins of all. And that's because all have gone astray. Now, there's a false doctrine that says Christ died only for a small portion of the human race uh, that they term the elect. But here we see that, indeed, Christ dies for all not just for some. Now this says, all of us have gone astray. Going astray, this is wandering in the wilderness of sin. As it, uh, the, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 
in the last verse. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Same word, going astray. And there he confesses, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. He recognizes, I've gone the wrong way. I have sinned. And so he's saying, I'm I'm this lost sheep, and uh, I want you to seek your servant, for I don't forget your commandments. And the idea of going astray, it's used frequently throughout the Old Testament for Israel's spiritual aberrations, how they have gone astray. And this is something that uh, occurs frequently uh, in the book of Isaiah. So this is not the first time that uh, Isaiah has said this. In Isaiah 3.12, As for my people, children are their oppressors, women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. Now when it says they cause you to err, it's actually the same thing. They are causing you to go astray. We find this also in chapter 19. Um, here it says, The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Naf are deceived. They also have deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. And these words here also are indicating going astray. They have been deceived. They have been led astray. And let's see, 45, 47.15. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall deliver you. The wandering here, it's the same Hebrew word, and it, it's saying they've gone astray, they've gone off the path, they have gotten out into the weeds, they've gotten lost. So all of us have gone astray like sheep. It's a simile, like sheep. And so this pictures Israel as having no shepherd. It includes the idea of being unaware and being helpless. And, of course, that's the universal condition of sinfulness. And so this applies to all mankind generally. So now when it says that we have turned each one, now this is individual. So we're not now just speaking in terms of some universal application, but this is specific. It's not that they're is a general solution for all people. Yes, Christ died for all, but the application is individual. It is not corporate. It never is corporate. And there are those who want to have a corporate solution. There are those who want to say, well, in the end, all will be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's uh, each one is guilty before God. Each one must be saved on an individual basis. 
So each has turned to his own way. They were all in opposition to God's ways, and so we have here nearly a description of the essence of sin. Each one has turned to his own way. We've turned against God. But we see that the Lord put all of the guilt on the servant, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this word laid on, uh, it's a word that usually denotes a violent, hostile action. It means to fall upon, to strike, so as to slay. So when it says he laid on him, this is very violent, even to the point of death. And so it pictures human sin and guilt as coming on the servant. It's like a, a destroying enemy that will overwhelm him with the wrath that comes with it. So the Lord is the one who has done this. This is an amazing statement. Men can crucify Jesus, but only God the Father is able to lay on Jesus Christ our sins. How did our sins get on Jesus? It was the work of God the Father. This is the great imputation of our sins to the sinless Son of God. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. The one who knew no sin, Christ, was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this indicates that God the Father put our sins on Christ, and this was a very harsh blow. And again, we have to keep in mind that it's the Lord who is the divine agent behind the servant bearing our sins. It wasn't accidental. And it's not something we could do. We can't go up to Jesus and say, here, take my sins. No, it's God the Father who did that. There was a song we used to sing years and years ago, and I haven't heard in a long time, for which I'm thankful. But I laid all my sins on Jesus. Wrong. I don't lay my sins on Jesus. This was the work of God the Father. So our sins are imputed to Jesus Christ, and he is going to pay the penalty for those sins. Okay, so we've gone this far in this servant song, and now we come to the fourth strophe, which is found in verses 7 through 9. And we're going to have a contrast between the unjust circumstances of the servant's death with his sinless submission to the plan of God. So this next strophe, the next three verses, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So here we have uh, the next stanza, as it were, in this uh, song. And we have here 
the suffering servant. He's mistreated, but he silently submits himself to death. And this is a death which his contemporaries did not understand. They could not comprehend what had happened. It did not occur to them that anything momentous had really taken place. They just thought they got rid of a troublemaker. And even though he was sinless, nevertheless, they cried out for his death. Jesus took this silently without uh, complaint. But even though his own people are going to cry out for his death, even though they totally misunderstand what happens, Nevertheless, he's going to have an honorable burial in spite of the intention of his enemies. All right, so we start out in this verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. So this highlights the patient submissiveness of um, the innocent servant in the face of mistreatment. The word oppressed, this is the... Uh, It's a word that's used for the exertion of great pressure for the payment of a debt. You owe me, and now if you've ever had somebody come up to you when you owe them money, and you know you owe them money, and they know it, and now they are really putting pressure on you to pay. That's one way that this word is used. Sometimes it also means that a great amount of pressure is put upon you to work. You get to work, you do it now, and somebody is there and they are going to punish you if you don't do the work. They are going to make you most miserable or they are going to cause you great suffering. And so this word means that there is intense pressure that is being put upon one. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ who faces intense pressure. This word was used for kings who demanded tribute, and if you don't pay the tribute, I'm going to invade your land and destroy and pillage. This is also the same word that was used for those taskmasters in Egypt who were oppressing the Israelites. My people are oppressed. Same word. So he was oppressed. There was intense pressure put upon him, and it says then he was afflicted. Now, this clause may be a circumstantial clause, which means while he was afflicted. While he was being afflicted, there was great pressure put upon him. Now, the word afflicted, it means to try to force somebody for uh, submission. It means to punish, to inflict pain upon So we have here the servant, and he voluntarily submits to the suffering. He was under tremendous pressure. Not only was there physical suffering, there was also tremendous mental pressure that is brought to bear upon this one even before he went to the cross. You think about when he went to Gethsemane and he was praying and it was so intense that the blood actually popped out of his forehead. Tremendous pressure. Something I think we can't enter into. We can't really comprehend. He knew what he was going to have to bear on the cross. 
And I don't believe it was the physical suffering that he knew that he would have to endure, but what he was going to have to endure when the sins of the world were put upon him. And so he was oppressed while he was being afflicted. Yet, he did not open his mouth. Now, we think about the time when Jesus was being lied about. He's in a, in a court the night before the cross. He's, he undergoes six trials, all of them illegal. And he is in this court, and witnesses have been bribed to come in and lie. They perjure themselves. And while they are telling lies about Jesus, he doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything. Now, when it says he opened not his mouth, did Jesus ever speak while he was on trial? The answer is yes. Yes, he did. He, he spoke to the high priest. He spoke in the religious court. He spoke in the secular court. He spoke to Judas. He spoke to soldiers in the garden. And so we can see that uh, Jesus did indeed speak when he was on trial. Let me see. So this is after the uh, false witnesses have been brought into the courtroom. And, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? You don't have anything to say? You're not going to defend yourself? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Yes, I am. Ah, but you know, there are those who claim that Jesus never said that he was the Messiah. Well, here it is. Are you the Messiah? Yes, I am. Very definite statement. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he did not answer against the false accusations, but when he was asked, are you the Christ? He said, yes, I am. Now he does speak up. And that's when the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? We have everything we need now. He's guilty of blasphemy. Let's go ahead and execute him. Uh, we find also um, in John 18... So here again, Jesus is on trial, and the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine, and Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret places I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So... When it says he opened not his mouth, it doesn't mean that he didn't say anything at all. But it is going to say he is not defending himself. He's not answering the charges brought against him. 
He is not complaining. He's not saying, this is not fair, this is unjust, uh, this is illegal. So he is not answering in that sense. And then again in John 18, if we go down to verse 34, uh, and now he's before Pilate. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, well, why are you asking me? Is, is this your own question, or did somebody talk to you about me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? <laughs> your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you to me. What have you done? He doesn't respond in self-defense. He just says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus did speak, but he doesn't do so in a self-defense. He's not insisting, oh, this is so unjust, but rather he is submitting himself to the Father's plan, and, and therefore he is not going to defend himself, even though he could have done so. But he doesn't do so because he wants to go to the cross to bear the sins of the world. He is intent on fulfilling the Father's plan, and therefore he... He does not answer back, and that's what it means when he opened not his mouth. All right. Next it says, he is led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now he was led as a lamb. Now in contrast to the wandering sheep of the previous verse, all of us have gone astray like sheep. Here we have this servant, and he is led like a lamb to the slaughter. So we have another simile. It's like a lamb to slaughter. And so the parallel clause as a sheep before shearers, uh, it may suggest here that this slaughter is commercial in nature, but the whole context of the passage really is talking about sacrifice. It's talking about a sacrificial issue. And the thing that strikes me here is that he is led. Question, who led him? He is led as a lamb to the slaughter. Well, we can think about the fact that the, the Jews cried out for his crucifixion and the, uh, the Romans then took him and uh, they, they scourged him and uh, still the Jews wanted him to be crucified and so they let him out, the Romans let him out for crucifixion. But I believe that this is saying it's the Lord who did this. Just as the Lord has laid on him the, the iniquity of us all, also it's the Lord who has led him out to the slaughter. This is the plan of God the Father. This is something that the Father is doing. And notice when you get down to verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
he, God the Father, has put him to grief. It's God the Father who makes his soul an offering for sin. So when it says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, I believe that this is God the Father who had this plan from eternity past. And he is leading his servant to die for the sins of the world. So we have sacrifice here. Now, the servant voluntarily submitted to a sacrificial death. That's something we can see in this context. It was voluntary. He was not forced into this. And uh, we can see... Jesus' statement in John 10, 18. He said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he was led there by the Father, but it was a voluntary submission Now, here we have a concept that people cannot grasp today. The world simply cannot understand substitutionary death. They say that is not right. It's not right that one person could die in the place of another. Even if he wanted to, it still wouldn't be right. How would that pay the penalty? And we just... Uh, as a people, and not we. <laughs> we want to throw out this concept of vicarious suffering, that one person should suffer in the place of another person. Somehow we, we, we can't comprehend that this is a good thing or that it's right. And yet we find this concept throughout the Bible. It's God's way. It's not man's way. And we don't have to agree with it. We don't have to like it. But certainly this is what God has done. And this is what he planned for. And this is what is revealed to the human race from the very beginning of sin in the world. So he is led as a lamb. Um, Now the word led, when this is used and it has people as the object, Uh, the sense of this word is normally to lead, and it conveys the leading of the Lord in four different ways. One, he will lead Israel back to Canaan in the future when he will lead Israel in the paths where they will not stumble. God is going to bring his people back into the land, and this word is used for leading them. Secondly, it's also used for those who seek the Lord will be led by him into the blessings of the Davidic covenant. This is found in Isaiah 55:12. So the same word is used there for the Lord leading Israel into blessing. But the word also is used for the Lord leading Israel into judgment. Uh, it's used this way in the Psalms. Uh, in several places. 
But fourth, it's also significant that the Messiah himself is to be led as a lamb to slaughter on behalf of the sins of the people. So I believe that this is the Lord who is leading his servant to the slaughter. Now, the word slaughter primarily is used for butcher, uh, butchering an animal, slaughter in that sense. You butcher an animal for food or for sacrifice. Um, but the the word is also used metaphorically to depict the slaying of men. And this word has the element of planning. To lead, to slaughter, indicates there was a purpose in doing this. It was not accidental. This is deliberate. There is the element of the plan by the executioner. Somebody planned to do this. And so the servant is led like a lamb to the slaughter. It's going to be this death of the innocent substitute. Now, we have two different words for sheep here. Um, and we find this also in the New Testament. There are several different words found for uh, sheep. This word is unusual. The word that we have here, it's unusual in the Hebrew text. And it's also unusual in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language about 250 B.C. And when they translated this into the Greek they also used a very unusual word for a lamb. It's not the usual word at all. And this word that was used in the Septuagint is found only four times in the New Testament. In each place, it's very significant. When we look at these uh, verses... We find it, first of all, in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, just shortly after that, looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's this very rare word. Uh, the only other, uh, well, it's found in Acts 8.32, which is simply a quotation from Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So that's just a citation from uh, the Septuagint of Isaiah 53. And then it's found in one other place, in a passage that's familiar to you, I'm sure. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So what is the significance of this unusual word? This is a direct reference to the Passover lamb. It's the lamb that had to be qualified to be used 
as a sacrifice. The lamb had to be separated. It had to be evaluated to make sure that it did not have defects, that it was not sick, and they had to make sure that it was without spot and without blemish. And so Jesus is identified by this phraseology that uniquely identifies him with the Old Testament sacrifice. This links Jesus directly with Isaiah 53. So there is no question that Jesus is this lamb. There are a lot of people who don't want to see Messiah in Isaiah 53. There are others who will say, yes, Isaiah 53 is a messianic passage, but it's not talking about Jesus. I was at the Museum of the Bible, um, and they they have a man there writing the, copying the scrolls in Hebrew, and so you had these drive-by evangelists, you know, they they want to evangelize this Jew, and they came in there, and they said, well, what about Isaiah 53? Do you know that? He said, of course I know it. You know, I've written it many times. Well, what do you do with it? What do you mean, what do I do? Well, don't you see the Messiah there? He said, yeah, I see the Messiah there. Oh, are you a believer in Jesus? No. Well, you know, if you see the Messiah there, how can you not be a believer in Jesus? I believe it's talking about Messiah. I just don't think Jesus is that Messiah. So you have those who say, no, Isaiah 53 is not Messianic. Others who say it is, but it's not Jesus. But this word for lamb specifically is going to link Jesus with Isaiah chapter 53. It's a very strong link because this word is unusual. So we're talking here about a specific lamb. It would be the Passover lamb, one that was without spot and without blemish. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, go back here. As a sheep before its shearer is silent. Uh, The word to shear here, it's used for shearing sheep. It's used for cutting hair. It's used for mowing the lawn, uh, cutting down grass. And uh, it's also used metaphorically for God cutting down a nation like grass. So all flesh is like grass and the God's going to cut it down. So the lamb before its shearer is silent. The word silent, literally it's the word to be bound. And uh, this was used for the mouth being bound. It meant unable to speak, to be mute, to be dumb. Now we have kind of taken the word dumb and spoiled it in our usage today because we've used it to indicate somebody that's not very smart. But the word means unable to speak. And so there were those who couldn't speak and they were called dumb and rightfully so. That's what the word means. But they came to be called dummies and people associated them with people who didn't have uh, much intelligence. But that is not the meaning of this word as we find it. So in many translations, we have the word dumb here, but it means uh, silent, 
in the sense of unable to speak. So the sheep before her shearers is unable to speak, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So in spite of God's punishment for sin, the servant would bear it without defending himself. In essence, he would allow others to fleece him and even kill him without even protesting. Now, it's interesting, this word for shearing. Israel objected to God shearing them. This is used for God bringing uh, judgment upon Israel, and God sh- uh, would shear Israel, and they, they were not silent. They did complain. Uh, now, the servant here is not a helpless victim, but one who knowingly and willingly submitted to death. So the servant does nothing and says nothing to keep him from the cross. He allows everything to happen. And all of the references in the New Testament to the Lamb of God corresponding to the Passover, they all are going to ultimately be tied to what we have right here in Isaiah chapter 53 with this suffering servant. So I want to take just a a few minutes here and talk about this concept of penal substitution, or as we called it before, vicarious. Vicarious means as a substitute, one in the place of another. But this is a doctrine which is under attack today, even in some Christian quarters, this idea of a penal substitution. They're saying, no, it's not right. And they, there are many different theories about the atonement. Why did Christ die? What was the reason for it? And um, they've got something now, Christ is the victor, and he's the one that had victory over the forces of evil, Satan and, and other things that are evil. And they're saying, so his death was not really penal. That is, related to law and punishment. Now, in the simplest terms, the biblical doctrine of penal substitution says that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross takes the punishment that we ought to suffer. But because Jesus suffered the penalty for our sins, God's justice is satisfied. And those who accept Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God. There are those who say, no, Jesus didn't take our sins. He only took our punishment. Well, that's false, too. The Lord has laid on him our iniquities. And then Christ is judged as our substitute. So the word penal means to uh, punish for offenses. Of course, substitution means one in the place of another. So penal substitution is the act of a person taking punishment for somebody else's offense. So when my children were small, and I want to give them the gospel, and so I said to my daughter, did your brother ever do anything wrong? (laughs) Oh, yeah, he's done a lot of bad things. I said, 
how would it be if I spank you for what he does wrong? And of course, well, no, I wouldn't do that. And I said, have you ever done anything wrong? Well, yes. Jesus took your place. He took your punishment for what you did wrong. So I'm trying to communicate this to a very young child, and and she got the message. She understood that. That's penal substitution. (laughs) One suffering the punishment that another deserves. So in our theology, Jesus Christ is the substitute. The punishment he took at the cross was ours based on our sins. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. So we can talk about substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement or penal substitution. So we understand that God in his perfection is absolutely just. He is holy, absolutely separate, and God is righteous. So when his righteousness has been offended, his justice demands that there be some form of payment for the sin. And man, of course, we are all sinful. We are born that way. We are depraved, and we are spiritually dead, and we are incapable of avoiding God's judgment on sin. We are dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and sins. But through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, God was propitiated. He was satisfied. That is, his justice, which demanded a penalty, has been satisfied because the penalty was paid by the sinless substitute. So God's justice allows Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And so his sacrifice serves as a substitute for for all, but it is applied or efficacious only for those who will accept it. So Jesus is exchanged for us as the recipient of sin's penalty. So this penal substitution is very clearly taught by the Bible. In fact, most of what uh, is revealed to us about the gospel in the Old Testament is related to this idea of penal substitution. And so we find that much of what God did prior to the death of Christ was to foreshadow this concept uh, as the purpose for the coming Messiah. So in Genesis 3.21, there we have God covering the man and the woman with skins. Where did he get the skins? He could have said, let there be skins. And he could have covered them that way. But I don't believe he did that, even though we are not explicitly told this. But to get skins, we would naturally think there was the death of an animal. An innocent animal who had done nothing wrong now is going to die, and its skins are going to be used to cover the nakedness of the man and the woman. And so this is the first reference to death, and you have 
one thing dying that didn't deserve to die because of the sinfulness of another. In Exodus 12:13, the Lord passes over the homes that are identified with the blood of sacrifice. That Passover lamb that was killed, they took its blood and then they painted the sides and the top of the door with the blood of that lamb. And so now the people inside the house are identified with that blood. And when the Lord passes over Egypt that night to bring death to the firstborn in every household, we have the idea that those in the house are safe because of the death of the substitute. We have uh, Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd, and Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is willing to die so that they can live. In Romans 3, 25, 26, Paul explains we have the righteousness of Christ because of the sacrifice of Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, by his death on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the sinless Christ takes our place because he was made sin for us. Hebrews 9.26 says that our sins were removed by the sacrifice of Christ. And 1 Peter 3.18 very clearly shows this substitution. If you don't know this verse, I would encourage you to go home and memorize it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. The word for here, it's a preposition of substitution. Christ died in the place of the unjust. I'm unjust, you're unjust. Christ suffered for sins when he was judged by God the Father, the just in the place of the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So here we have the substitution. Now there are those who want to eliminate or to minimize the uh, idea of substitution and the death of Christ, but this is one of the major themes of the Bible, and we ought always keep this in mind when we are thinking about the gospel. If we could produce our own righteousness or make ourselves acceptable to God, then Jesus died for nothing. So Jesus died as our substitute, so that we could have eternal life. But it says in Hebrews 10.4 that the it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we have a question. What about all of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Were they for nothing? They kill all those millions of animals for no reason? Well, the answer is the death of those animals had no value in itself. But it was what the blood symbolized that made the difference. It was the idea that there is one taking the place of the other, one dying because of what the sinful person had done. 
and it became a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the substitutionary death of Christ, now it has to be supplied to each individual. And we see the, 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 the whole idea on the Day of Atonement. When you had the sacrifice of a bull for the sins of the high priest. You had the sacrifice of a goat for the sins of the nation. And then you have the scapegoat. In Leviticus chapter 16, this is the scapegoat. But I want you to see what happened with this scapegoat. Aaron, the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities, to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So it's a very clear picture, the laying on of hands, identification. And with the laying on of hands, the confession of sins, the picture is the sins are now transferred to the animal. And then the animal is led away out into the desert. That's the scapegoat. He is bearing away the sins of others. Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain. He is also the scapegoat. He's a picture of both. We have this wonderful picture of the Lord. To me, as we read Isaiah chapter 53, I'm I'm just overwhelmed with it. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's led as a lamb to the slaughter. God the Father did that for you. He did that for me. And Jesus did it willingly. He didn't rebel. He didn't complain. He was silent. And why did he do it? Well, there's a problem with the translation here in verse 8, and we'll, we'll see that next, next class. But notice at the very end of verse 8, for the transgressions of my people, not for his own sins. Again, we have substitution. So we have... This good news. What is the good news? God did something about my sins. How did he do it? How did he provide salvation? He laid all of my sins on Jesus. He led him as a lamb to the slaughter. I did that so I could be forgiven, so I could have eternal life. 
Oh, I hope we come to understand this so that we just love Jesus, what he did, what he endured because of what I have done in my own sinfulness. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Jesus, your suffering servant, the one who was led to slaughter, even though he's sinless, and even though he was unjustly put to death, he did so without complaint. He was focused on fulfilling your plan that he might bring many sons into glory. We can't thank you enough. Though I pray that because we've had these few moments to look at this servant, it can remind us of what we have in salvation. It's also going to motivate us to live in a way that's going to please you. Jesus didn't please himself. He sought to please you. May this motivate us in our thinking and in our actions so that we might walk worthy of you and make it our goal to be pleasing to you in all respects. So I pray that your spirit will truly give us depth of understanding about these things and bring these things up in our thinking as we go through these next days so that we might just praise you for this wonderful Savior. I pray now you'll give us mercy as we go to our homes, keep us safe, but I pray you'll also let us come back to once again open your word and fellowship with you through the written word, through the living word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.